Welcome back to Trending in Education. You're about to hear a great episode with friend of the show, Terry Givens. Keep in mind that Terry and I are going to be live at South by Southwest EDU on March 7th on the podcasting stage with Tarlin Ray and Dan Harrison. If you're down in Austin on Monday, March 7th, definitely check us out. Also, one more plug before we get going. Inside Jackson Station, a podcast we produced here at Palmer Media, just came out. Check us out at InsideJacksonStation.com. Also, anywhere you get your podcasts. Lots of cool stuff on the horizon here at Palmer Media. Thanks again for listening. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited to be joined again by Dr. Terry Givens, who's been on the show several times. And Terry and I have also done This Week in Higher Ed webinars, live casts many times as well. Terry, always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. Welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you. It's great to be here. And, yeah, and, uh, and you are uh, a prolific writer you have a new book which we definitely want to talk about i did read it which is a credit to amazing me. yeah i know i know but it, <laughs> I said, it's a it's an interesting reading it actually broadened my perspective as someone who maybe is overly domestic u.s focused in my perspective the book's called the roots of racism the politics of white supremacy in the u.s and europe it's really spanning the Atlantic and, and spanning a really wide range of history, going all the way back to the 15th century, I believe, and then yes. covering some of the, the critical periods in our history right up through George Floyd and summer of 2020 Black Lives Matter. So it was also really great in that it's not a pre-pandemic zeitgeist, you know, at the end of it, you're capturing more where we really are right now it's relatively hot off the presses but we definitely wanted to talk a little bit about that any high level ways to understand that book because the other book that you wrote that that went out last year is radical empathy and we're going to be at south by southwest edu in march on the podcast stage doing a panel together if folks are interested in terry's stuff check us out at south by southwest edu the books are radical empathy and the roots of racism We'll probably be talking more about the transatlantic, broader global perspective about race, which is what I really got out of the new book, which was really a bit of a revelation for me. So I wanted to spend a little time on that. Can you just catch our listeners up on, on who you are and and what led you to to write the, maybe the most recent book? So I'm a political scientist and I recently joined McGill University and my research over the years really led up to this point. I started out studying anti-immigrant parties in Europe, you know, the Front National and the, the Republicaner in Germany and so on. And so my first book was Voting Radical Right in Western Europe. And that book really came at an interesting time in Europe because it, at the same time that the far-right Austrian Freedom Party was coming into power in, in Austria, in response to that, the EU passed the Racial Equality Directive and then led up to another book project that uh, came out in 2014 called Legislating Equality. Part of the problem is when I was studying these issues back in the late 90s, 
you know, everybody in Europe, except the UK, of course, would say, oh, well, race isn't an issue here. You know, we don't have any problems. So, but then they went and passed the racial equality directive in, in 2000. So it was like, well, really? It isn't? And, and, and I, but I've also seen this divide within political science of people who study the U.S. and people who study other countries. And you know, when I was doing this work back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I can count on one hand the number of us, especially people from Black or minority backgrounds who are doing this work in Europe. And obviously there are people in the UK and other people in Europe doing some of this work, but it was not you know, even remotely mainstream. I mean, my books were well-received, but I feel like I've been forging this path throughout my career and, you know, even studying immigration politics beyond the U.S. wasn't, well, just in general, wasn't a topic that a lot of people were, were looking at back then. The American Political Science Association, it's only been the last 10 years or so that they started a section on the politics of immigration. Yeah. And so there's been this void in the literature that has not pulled all these pieces together. And you have to have an understanding of U.S. politics and history and European politics in order to make this connection. And that's what I've been doing over the last few years and in writing this book is saying, look, you know, these ideas, you know, and, and I'm really pulling together a bunch of work by other people, right? right. It's my own research over the last 20 years, but it's also here's what, you know, Bob Vitalis and Jessica Priest and, you know, all these other you know, people, Michael Hanchard, you know, all these people. So it's really, it's coming from my academic perspective, but I think it's very accessible in the sense that I'm really trying to say we need to have a more comparative approach to the study of race because these ideas didn't come from just anywhere. Right. You know, they go back to the 15th century and the right. development of the slave trade and then what happened after Reconstruction and what happened with immigration. And, and you know, all these different things are, are coming into play right. in this idea of, of race and racism. Things that are systemic and that are structural in nature take a long time to, to turn around or change. And they also require a more broad understanding so that anything that you try to do to make a change is likely going to have influences in other places. I was really struck by some of the white nationalist politics of the U.S. wound up informing the the Nazis and back in the the thirties, which was mm -hmm. you know there there are a lot of those types of connections that you know I don't know I, I maybe I just think of things in terms of the the high school <laughs> social studies classes that I took where you take your world history in one context. And in that case, it's, you know, the U S and how we helped in these world wars. And then in the U S history, there is, you know, stuff about the civil war and, and back, you know, I'm showing my age, but how much coverage of, you know, reconstruction and Jim Crow even made it into, to my education is, is, is a little bit spotty, but it was really useful. I think for the, that way for me, where I feel like I can speak with more confidence now about how some of the things that I know on a more local domestic level are connected to things that are happening around the world. And that is something that you do get into here as well, where, you know, as much as we might look at the Trump presidency and, you know, the, what happened on January 6th and you know, what, what's, what's going on nowadays politically in the U S as, you know, uh, a once in a lifetime phenomenon, when you do take that step back, you see, oh, I got it. This is Trumpism is this flavor, but if yeah. you see, you know, Le Pen in, 
in France, there's another flavor there. The Netherlands has its own. And, and then even some of the stuff that I had no real context around the association with citizen, between citizenship and immigration, how much that varies by cultures within Europe and how much of that parallels how we understand race in the U.S. I really hadn't been exposed to that before. And that's why I'd recommend this book, even for non-academic, I view myself as a non-academic, I'm like academic curious, but I did feel like there was a lot in this that, uh, was hugely relevant for me. And, and now it is, you know, it's black history month in the U S like, I think a lot of what's happening in the NFL and elsewhere is making people think more critically about, uh, some of this stuff. Any thoughts on how this book connects to the conversation that we may be more familiar with in the U.S. these days? Absolutely. And, you know, I have to give props to the 1619 Project because even though it's been criticized for various reasons, you know, it's funny because I, I, I saw an article from a uh, historian. Well, we already knew all this stuff. It's like, no, we did not. You may have known it. And your students who took your classes may have known it, but right. I'm guess you know, that's a pretty small percentage of the population. Right. And, you know, and for me, it's not that I didn't know this stuff. It's just, I didn't really think about, you know, that's why I had to do the historical deep dive right. and say, wait a second, you know, all of this stuff I've learned. And frankly, I, none of it did I learn in college or as a PhD student. Right. This is all stuff I've learned on my own, mm -hmm. uh, reading different authors and, and doing preparation to write this book. And so what people need to understand is that the, those who don't understand the, their history are doomed to repeat it. And that's what we're seeing is, mm. you know, even in the, you know, take the NFL, right? We had the Rooney rule and it did a, some good, you know, there was a point in time when we had a Super Bowl with two black coaches playing against each other. And yet the system itself is so persistent mm -hmm. that you can have an intervention like the Rooney rule. And yet we're back to, you know, as of today, I think what two black coaches yeah. right. in the NFL. Right. And, and I'm at McGill university where, you know, two years ago they had eight black faculty out of 1700. Now we've increased that number, tripled wow. that number in a couple of years. Yeah. But so the problem is, you can't understand where we are today without understanding that history. How did we get here? Yeah. Why is it acceptable that, we, or why is it a norm that it's okay to have a white institution with no black faculty? You know, right. Right. why is it okay to have, you know, an institution like the NFL? You know, why is it okay that in Europe, I mean, you know, there's a strong connection to sports here because, of course, in Europe, you have a situation where black athletes get taunted on the field. Right. Um, you know, bananas thrown at them, you know, all kinds of stuff happening. And of course, you know, they're trying to fight the racism and FIFA, but not doing a very good job of it. Right. And so if we don't understand the history and how we got here and why it's not just in the U.S. or just in Canada or just, you know, even in a place like France where they've had a, a, a successful radical right party or or in Germany, which had now has a successful radical right party. And, you know, it's, it does tie to not only is there the connection between you know, in history for you know, between the Jim Crow laws and in Nazi Germany, but South Africa as well. I, the apartheid. I, mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to understand that ideas are, don't, you know, ideas don't respect borders. Right. And, 
Um, in fact, there are people who purposely connect and that is happening today. It's happened in the past. It, it goes back to, you know, so much of this transmission happened through the Catholic church in the 15th and 16th century. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and the Kings who were beholden to the church and, and all of that. And so I think it's really important to understand that, you know, these things are so persistent and it's so hard to change them because we have to deal with the underlying structure, not only the underlying structures, but the norms and the ideologies that lie underneath them mm -hmm. or the, just the things that we accept, you know, right. I mean, do we ever, you know, take a step back and think about the fact that, I mean, Black History Month maybe, but, you know, it's every single day, you know, we're seeing the results of, yeah. you know, 500 years of racism. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and then even how it, um, became associated with the color of your skin, you know, where, you know, the, the history of slavery was interesting, even the word slavery coming from the Slavs and how the, the Greeks and, and, and others did have white slaves during their time, but it was more the way the colonial, colonial Europe interacted and exploited with Africa mm -hmm. to establish a racially oriented by something, and then the, the the fact that race is in fact a, a social construction, you know, which again, these are things that I more from a social science perspective, I kind of understood that, but I didn't, you know, and not a political science uh, perspective. Right. But it, but it was a place where the the political science piece got really interesting to me, thinking about the future as well, because in some ways there are different experiments that are all out in play at the same time. And if you don't have the broader perspective, you only really can think within your own limited context. But then when you could start saying, well, here's what happened in the Netherlands, or here's how okay. coalitions formed in Austria that wound up checking some of the, 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 the white nationalist movement that was happening. You do conclude by being somewhat, I uh, hope this isn't a spoiler, but it did sound like you, you, I guess maybe rather than optimism, you haven't given up hope there, there's certainly hope on the horizon, but it sounds like it takes a good amount of, uh, informed effort, you know? So can you pick up a little more on that perspective? Like, where are we today? And then what you might see on the horizon and where action, uh, maybe makes the most sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we're, you know, we've got, we've got two somewhat opposing forces, you know, the, the politics of retrenchment and, you know, the anti-CR theoretical race theory and, you know, the book bannings the and backlash. then we've got, yeah, yeah. yeah, the backlash, but it is a backlash. It's something that they're responding to. It's the Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the fact that yeah, they're calling what they're calling racist now is what we used to, you know, just call, Hey, we're trying to make things more equal. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's because, and the reality is that there is a group of white people out there who feel like they are losing out because they hear, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to become majority minority. And California is already majority minority and we haven't yeah. fallen into the ocean yet. Sure. Um, but the broader issue is the overarching inequality, which has been perpetuated and obviously is not equally distributed, even though we have Oprah up there and the, the billionaires. Right. But, you know, the, the racial inequality is tied to that in broader inequality and the lack of wealth development and, and all of that. And that, and and that, so, that very much was made 
more apparent through the crucible of the pandemic and right. and George Floyd and and the fact that that response, that initial uprising, wound up being transnational, global. Black Lives Matter protests were happening in Europe. There was heightened sensitivity around policing over there. We are in a transnational, global consciousness kind of footing now as well, which is why I think a lot of what you're getting at is, is really interesting. And that's why I'm curious, you know, where do you see the trend lines heading and what might you recommend people do if they're trying to move things in the right direction? Well, the first is to educate themselves. And then the second is it's a political situation, right? And so it's to become engaged in politics It's to vote. It's yeah. to get their friends to vote. And, and, you know, and it's not just voting for a progressive or Democrat, it's voting for Republicans who are common sense, mm. you know, science believing Republicans who, who believe in being, you know, loyal and, and to de democracy into this country. Mm -hmm. It's, and frankly, you know, if we're looking at the survival of our democracy. That's the real problem is getting people who are people of good faith who maybe don't agree with the Democrats in their perspectives, but to vote for Republicans who aren't extreme and right. who are willing to you know, work in a bipartisan way. I mean, we're in this really perilous point in history when we've got a you know Republican party that's saying, you know, a riot is legitimate political discourse, which is just crazy. Right. You know, it, it just makes no sense to me how they get from, you know, a year ago saying this was an awful thing to where we are now. I mean, I understand it from a, a perspective as a political scientist and it's all about political power and the maintenance right. of that, but it doesn't, you know, it just makes no sense in the context of patriotism and, and protecting our democracy. It's interesting. I did a, a talk for a, a show from the, the Austin, Texas public television station called Black Academics. And the title was, you know, can democracy survive racism? Mm. And, you know, when I, did that a couple of years ago, three years ago, I believe it was. And I was, you know, probably more hopeful than him now. Yeah. But I mean, that's part of the question. Can we survive racism? And I don't think we can survive racism. We have to attack racism. We have to dismantle structural discrimination. And so it means people being willing sometimes to give something up mm -hmm. to say, okay, you know, I have privilege as a white person and I may be able to get this job just because I'm white, but I have to be willing to step up and say no. The, the funny thing is, you know, when I, when we do these things like this hiring strategy at McGill, where we're trying to hire black faculty, well, why can't we just go with the, the best candidate? It's like, because you won't look at the best candidate who may be black. Right. Just like with the NFL, you may not look at the best candidate because they're black. Right. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to put in structures that say, okay, you have to look at the black candidate. Well, that doesn't work. Right. So right. we have to go even further and say, no, we're only going to look at black candidates. Right. And then whichever black candidate comes out on top, you know, gets the position. But, you know, you sometimes you have to push things in that direction in order to get change. Yeah. And, you know, it's only fair that, you know, people who have not even been considered you know, in the past, her jobs get a chance. Right. And I think anybody can understand that. Mm -hmm. In your other book, uh, Radical Empathy, you do talk about the importance of, of empathy really throughout, which it's your point, I think, is also I ideally reaching out to some of the people who could be breaking bad right now to realize that there is still 
hope in them. And that is one of the things that I still struggle with because I think there is this tendency towards polarization, but at the same time, if you can't reach out to the better angels and in individuals, if you can't see that in others, in some ways the, the battle is already lost. To me, it goes back to the deplorables or the 47%. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just bad. It's bad politics to begin with, mm-hmm. but it's also just, it's not ultimately what's going to start to get us out of this. Are there any connections? Uh, I, I imagine you see many of them, but can you highlight any connections between those, your two most recent books? Absolutely. They're very much connected. So Radical Empathy, I, I really wrote for a general audience to say, here's my life story. Let me connect it to the research. Let me help you understand why you know, things like health disparities exist and, and wealth disparities and all of that. And you know the roots of racism is saying, okay, we learned in Radical Empathy that there's structural discrimination. Now I'm going to tell you why there's structural discrimination. And so I go through the history. I tell you why political science and sociology have ignored the work of, you know, African-Americans like Du Bois and Ralph Bunch and and others. For those who have followed me on LinkedIn, you know, I've been posting about Black history. Mirza Tate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in international relations, there's all these great thinkers who almost got lost to history because, you know, People today, you know, be, our our disciplines were so white, <laughs> and you know these people's voices were just not considered relevant. First of all, you know they their job wise they were limited to Howard University. You know they couldn't get jobs in predominantly white institutions. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Howard. Actually, very amazing scholars there. Sure. But because of that, you know they worked at the Harvards and the Princetons and the Yales or the Chicago School. You know whatever it may be. Yeah, they weren't getting the same. Well, you know, not just because they were Howard, but because they were black, of course. Sure. Yeah. And real you know, Rob Bunch, who's you know, he's well known for his work in the UN. He got the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize. Well, he said, you know, I had to get the Nobel Peace Prize just to be considered to become president of the American Political Science Association. I, I mentioned even in my Radical Empathy book, you know, we have to work twice as hard to get half the credit. Right. <laughs> and you know, Ralph Bunch had this incredibly amazing career and. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I could go on and on about that, but there's all this work that's been done that just doesn't, you know, we are, isn't taught in, in, in school, isn't used in theory. Yeah. And so I think that's, so in a sense, the roots of ra- you know, radical empathy was more general. Roots of racism is not only taught, you know, I love it if people from the general public are, are in, interested in it, but it's really telling my colleagues in political science and sociology and uh, various other fields that we have to understand our history too. Mm-hmm. And that if we don't start creating that change and start getting it into the public realm and teaching it and talking about it and you know working it into our research, then we're going to stay stuck in this muddle of not understanding why is it that we have these people willing to pursue violence, right. uh, you know, because this is our history, right? Right. Our history is a history of violence towards us mm-hmm. as black people. Right, right. And so it's nothing new here. Right. And, and a little fun fact for our listeners, Terry and I were doing a live webcast on January 6th. That's while, right. While the attack on the, which I didn't even, I wasn't even watching it. You and, uh, you and uh, uh, Tarrant was, was on with us and mm-hmm. y'all were both tracking it. And it was, it was one of those like almost stunned 
you know, like, and, and that was where I was struck by you as a, a political scientist, you were kind of observing and thinking ahead a few moves to, you know, well, you know, clearly they're going to need to stay there all night to complete the proceedings once things are safe, you know, and there are certain perspectives that I think you take for granted that I'd love to get a little more from you before, before we wrap up, where do you think things are headed now politically in the U S and then are there any places where you think we should keep an eye on, uh, as kind of, uh, harbingers, you know, like the Brexit exit, you know, what happened in the UK in some ways gave us some, some indicators in 2016 that wound up, you know, bearing us a, a difficult presidency, but like, what do you see out there? What should we be keeping an eye on any, anything that that's sort of you're looking at that will probably benefit from your perspective? Well, I'm watching the media spin on the January 6th committee hearings. Mm-hmm. The direction that goes is going to be really important. I'm watching the DOJ to see which direction they're going in terms of potential prosecutions. But, you know, more internationally, I'm looking at the French elections coming up. We've got Eric Zemmour as well as Martin Le Pen running. And, you know, how that plays out is going to have an impact on the rest of Europe, as well as our relationship with France and, you know, international affairs. Actually, I was just listening to a radio show this morning that was talking about how the U.S. is losing its standing because of, you know, the assault on democracy here. And even... You know, I'm, I'm actually based in Canada and Montreal at the moment, and even the, the, the ramifications for Canada are, are important. And obviously the upcoming uh, congressional elections, there's a lot of, of conflict right now happening over congressional districts, yep. court cases, et cetera. So there's a lot to watch, but I guess in terms of a harbinger is, you know, can those of us who believe in our country, the United States, you know, who care about democracy, can we make a difference? And I believe we can. I believe the vast majority of Americans believe in our democracy and don't want to see it disappear. The thing that strikes me the most is that the media is only paying attention to this very vocal minority. Right. And if we can't, and that's why the Republican Party is responding to this very vocal minority, because those are their, a lot of them are their primary voters and their right. base. So right. what we need is for people of good conscience to step up and say, no, right. this is not the way, the direction I want my country to go in. Mm-hmm. And I guess having things organized so that people know what to do with that activation, where to find the motivation. How do you stay? I mean, you're, you're an impressive follow, you're an impressive human, but you're an impressive follow on Twitter and LinkedIn, which is where I I keep track of most of what you're doing. You're also on Facebook and you're kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. How do you stay motivated and energized? And do you have any advice for folks who are struggling to get to get back up into the fray when just, you know, living a day to day is just challenging for people these days. Well, not to be self-serving, but my book, Radical Empathy is full of all kinds of tips on, on how to get, you know, involved in, and to, you know, actually practice. Cause I believe the reason it's radical is because it means taking action. Yeah. And you'd be surprised at the fact that just this, you're t- telling people you're going to vote has an impact. Mm-hmm. Talking to people about political ideas has an impact. It's funny because I think we have a tendency to get caught up with political personalities. And I was having a talk with a friend yesterday and I said, no, it's not that I care or you know, love this politician or hate that politician. I believe in the system 
And so I'm going to vote for whichever candidate I think is going to do something that is going to help, you know, change things like structural discrimination. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I have some partisanship in me, but I'm really more interested, you know, rather than saying I'm for this candidate or that candidate. That's why we have to learn about the structures. We have to understand why these things are perpetuated and you know, vote for those people who are understand that and are willing to create real change. Mm-hmm. But I'm also very pragmatic. <laughs> I know we are going to create change overnight. And so part of it is I've done a lot of community level work, just getting more women to run for office, because we know every study shows that you get women in office, you get better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So encouraging people who want to, to get more involved on that front, whether it's supporting candidates or encouraging, you know, supporting, I support organizations that encourage women, regardless, you know, it's a bipartisan organization that just encourages women to run for office. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot that people could be doing that if they understood that it's like a drop in the ocean, it feels like a drop in the ocean, but you know, you can create a wave. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to ask you before we wrapped up more your perspective on just education as someone who's living it in new ways right now that that, congratulations for being at McGill and now you're back in the classroom there, you know, you're writing books as an academic. You're also still running a a company that does professional development in education and and even outside of it, more brain industry, university training, that kind of thing. You wear so many different hats. I'm not even sure which one I'm asking about, but any perceptions, anything new and emerging that you want to bring to bear around where education is nowadays? Well, education is under attack and we've seen years and years and years in the United States of budget cuts, of shutting down of programs of, you know, now small private colleges are struggling. And, you know, we've seen a real disinvestment from higher education and K through 12. So we're in a real mess from that perspective. And it's really going to take a huge effort to get people to understand that, yes, you have to pay taxes in order to get good education. And, you know, we really need to be taxing the wealthy more. I mean, I live in a place where it would take less than a 1% tax to dramatically increase the education system, you know, and the, uh, you know, meaning where I was living at the moment, but in Silicon Valley. But there's just these gross distortions in the system that are impacting the quality of education. So we really need to get back to thinking seriously about supporting teachers. I mean, teachers are, are running from the classroom right now. Yeah. You know, they, they aren't paid enough. And then they're being told that they can't deal with their own curriculum and the parents should be involved and all these things that are just so antithetical to our public education system. Hmm. And, and I know it's all part of a broader endeavor to yeah. you know, undermine our education system. So I guess that's my take is that we have to be willing, again, it's a political thing. We have to be willing to stand up for public education, K through lifelong, because I believe firmly in lifelong learning and that our institutions of higher education should be doing lifelong learning. And they do most of them right, in various ways, but that we have to stand up for education. Yeah. And then you've been doing more education of organizations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, all the, all those kinds of things. Any insight or perspective you can share around how that's been going? Well, you know, it's not a one-shot deal. You know, bringing in somebody to do a, a workshop, you know, it's helpful. 
fun and a few people might get something out of it, but it's really being willing to do the work long-term and being really committed to it. And, you know, I talk about how to be an inclusive leader. And so it really takes the front you know, from the bottom up people saying we, we need, we want to be an inclusive workplace and we want our leadership to address that. And then from the top down, the leadership being willing to say, yes, this is important and we want to be inclusive leaders. Excellent. And if folks are curious about any of this, there'll be links to the roots of racism and radical empathy on the show page for this episode, the, the work you're doing around the, the consulting, where, where should folks go if they're curious about the diversity training? Just go to terrygivens.com or writerprofessionaldevelopment.com. Okay. Um, go to terrygivens.com to find out more about Terry. Uh, and Terry also on Twitter. Is it the same? Terry Gibbons? Terry Gibbons. Ask, at Terry Gibbons. T-R-R-I. I. I-I-I. T-R-R-I. Not Y. Yeah. <laughs> and then as we wrap up here, you know, as a reminder, if you like, if you like what you're hearing, you'll hear more of this. If you come see us down at South by Southwest. EDU in March. And my old stopping grounds in Austin, Texas. In Austin, Texas. It'll be fun. Really looking forward to that. Any closing thoughts as we wrap up here, Terry? Don't give up hope. (laughs) Awesome. We have a great country. We just have to work on it. Awesome. Yeah, we have to keep on keeping on, keep on doing the good things. Following folks like Terry for inspiration. Hopefully you enjoyed what you heard today. We'll be back Again, soon. thanks as always for listening. If you like what you're hearing, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Thanks so much for having me.